We're going to be in Luke chapter 20 this morning, Luke chapter 20. So as you've got your Bibles and things there, you can, you can open there, Luke chapter 20, jumping back into here and uh, moving our way again through, through Luke. Uh, as you're turning there or getting yourselves uh, set, um, just a reminder that our Bible study this Wednesday uh, won't be on. We're not having Bible study this Wednesday evening. Um, taking a little bit of time off work, and so just going to have that break through the, the whole week on that. But the following week we'll be back back into it. So just remember that, and uh, and uh, we'll we'll jump into that again. This morning we're going to look at a passage of scripture here in Luke chapter twenty. As we continue on, we so well. It's been several weeks, uh, probably three weeks, I think, since we were in Luke twenty, just before Easter, and uh, so we're going to move our way back back through it again. Uh, most of you know that I'm I'm not a big footy fan. I follow it and and you know I'll watch a, a game or two here and there through the season. I know there's a lot of people who, with footy not on at the moment, are suffering withdrawals. Um, I, I haven't missed it so much because, like I say, I'm only a I'm a half-hearted fan. And when people ask me who I support, my answer is usually I'm a half-hearted Eagles supporter. There's, if you were to press me who I support, it'd be the Eagles, but. I don't really follow that much. But I know one thing about footy, and I know one thing about being an Eagle supporter or a West Australian when it comes to, to footy, and that is that no matter, what ta- no matter what teams are playing, always barrack for the team that's playing against Collingwood. Uh, they're our common enemy, I think, aren't they? So it doesn't matter who's playing, even if they're better than the, the Eagles or beating the Eagles before, or our rivals, if they're playing Collingwood... We want them to beat Collingwood. It works into that, that old saying that's often around, uh, my enemy's enemy is my friend. And that's really what we see here as we look into Luke chapter 20 and see what's transpiring and what's going on. So let's start this morning by reading through just a, a passage of scripture, which is Luke chapter 20, and we're going to begin in verse 19 and read through verse 26. So Luke chapter 20, verse 19. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar's, the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Let's have a a word of prayer as we approach God's word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to have have set our minds and our focus on you through song and the reading of your word this morning. 
And we ask as we take just a few moments here to, to think through this event in your life and what it teaches us, that it would reach into our hearts, it would call us to be drawn more near, to pursue you more fully and completely. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a moment while I get a drink here. You know that, I just said that idea, we said before, where it said, my enemy's enemy is my friend. That's what we see happening here. We get a, a bit of a fuller picture of who it's all there as we compare the other gospel accounts of this. And you read a little bit further. So the next question, because remember I said Luke 20 is this chapter of questions. So there's a series of questions all designed to attack Jesus' authority and undermine him so that they can try and, and uh, get rid of him. Uh, and so the next question that comes, which we'll look at uh, the next time, comes from the Sadducees. Here we have the scribes and the Pharisees, and in the other Gospels we're told that there's another group involved here, which is the Herodians, which makes this uh, an odd mix of people coming together to try and get Jesus. Because here we have a, a group of people who have all very different agendas and very different backgrounds. So we have a very unlikely alliance. The scribes and the priests and the Pharisees are very religious and very Jewish in their their focus of, of life. They are definitely pro-Israel and very much religious and wanting to follow the law and keep the law. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are religious, yes, but they're, they're also politically motivated. So they are quite happy to fall in line with Rome or to move with Rome if it will increase their power and give them influence in society. So they have a much more political agenda to them, but they are still very Israel-focused. The Herodians, on the other hand, are a group of, of Jews who are very pro-Rome. So we have here a group of people who normally are bickering and fighting amongst one, one another, particularly the Herodians to the, the others, but they, they don't all, all get along. But here, they are joined together. In fact, the question that they pose here in verse 19, where they, uh, or, or yeah, down in, in verse 22, should I say, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If you were to ask each of the groups individually, they would have a very different answer for that. So the Pharisees, if you were to ask them, should we give tribute to Caesar? The Pharisees would say, no, he is not Jewish. Our money belongs to, to God. If you were to ask the Herodians, the answer would be absolutely yes, it belongs to him. So even their answer to the same question they ask would be, be very different. The reason they're going about through all this is Jesus is undermining their authority. He's taking away the power that they've got over the people and, and, and showing them to be the hypocrites that they really are. And as a result of that, of course, as we see it in your verse 19, where it talks about as a result of what Jesus is doing, and having just seen the triumphal entry of Jesus into Christ, uh, into Jerusalem, the people of, of Jerusalem, particularly in Israel as a whole, and Galilee in the north, are beginning to swell in their support for him. So they're praising him, and they're, they're proclaiming him, and they're beginning to look at him and see he is the Messiah, although maybe misguided, but still, the praise is going to Jesus. This frustrates them, as we see through the Gospels, to no end, because now, 
all that Jesus has been saying, which contradicts the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is beginning to be seen. So they need some way to be able to get rid of Jesus so the people will come back to them. Now, at this point, they're stuck. They haven't got a way to do it themselves. They can't get rid of Jesus in any way themselves, and they need to do it quickly. Because if they don't act quickly, the power that Jesus has over the people is going to quickly rise and rise and rise, and soon he will be uh, above them all. So they need to act quickly. But to act quickly, there is only one option they have. The only option they have here in getting rid of Jesus is Rome. They need Rome to step in. So as they put these questions to Jesus, and they're trying to tempt Jesus and, and question him and get him to set a, a, say a wrong word or set foot in a wrong way through what he does, their attempt is this, to put him in a place where they can go to Rome, to the governor, and say, here is Jesus, he is defying Rome. And then Rome can get him and kill him. So that's their, their cunning plan. That's why they've sent in these spies to, to question and to follow him and find something out so that they can get some evidence to say to Rome, you need to deal with him because he is outside of what belongs to them. Now, they pose this question to Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so, depending on how he answers that, is going to put him in a very difficult place, at least according to their understanding or how they would see the answer. We're... We're to give government what belongs to government, and we're to give to God what belongs to God is the answer that Jesus uh, brings out there. But in the context of what we read here, what belongs to the government is clear. So he's, he's showed them, he says, they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? So the context is very clear. Jesus says, give me a coin. Takes a coin, just like we have on our coins. They had a, a, a picture and an inscription which said it was Caesar's money. You know, we have on our coins, we've got a, a picture of, of the queen because she's the head of the Commonwealth and the inscriptions that uh, this is an Australian dollar. And so the context there is clear. If it belongs to the government, well, then the government is due what, it's, uh, what it requires and what it asks for. The challenge of the question, though, is not the first part. The challenge of the question is not give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar or, in our case, pay your taxes. That's clear. The challenge to all is the second part, what belongs to God. That's the real pointed question. That's the question here that Jesus raises, which cuts to the heart, which makes the biggest difference in what's going on here. So the question to you and to me today is, is that what belongs to God and what should I give him? Over the next two weeks, so this week and next week, we're going to cover this idea. This morning, we're going to talk about the question of why we must give to God. And then next week, we're going to talk about the what or the how that we give to God. And so we're going to look at these two broad areas. Now, the real reason pardon me, the real reason we must give to God is, as we'll see, really very simple. The reason we give to God, the real reason we give to God is because we belong to him. That summarizes pretty much everything we're going to talk about this morning, that idea. Why do we give to God? And this is a statement which I make universally. So this is not just a statement to us as believers. This is a statement to everybody 
in the world. The reason we must give to God or render to God what is his is because we belong to him. So this morning I said we're going to look at the why we must give to God. And we're going to look at three reasons for that this morning very quickly. And I intend to be a little bit shorter perhaps than the normal as we go through. That's my intention. Uh, but the three reasons I want to look at this morning are these. Reasons that we should give to God. Are firstly, you are his creation. You are his creation. Secondly, you bear his image. So you are his creation. Secondly, you bear his image. And thirdly, you carry his presence. The first two of those, so that you are his creation and that you bear his image, those are universal truths. So those are true for every one of us, no matter what we believe about God or what we understand about God. Those first two statements are absolutely and universally true. The third statement is much more specific in its application, and that speaks more to the believer. But those are the three things we want to look at quickly this morning. You are his creation, you bear his image, you carry his presence. And so there I've given you the answers to the three things, and I can see my family here filling out the answers already on their, their sheets. Let's start at the beginning. Firstly, you are his creation. You are his creation. And in support of these things, we're going to be looking at a number of different passages this morning. And to start with here as we consider this truth, that you are his creation, is why should I give to God? Why should I render to God what is God's? The first is this, you are his creation. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, we read these words in Paul's sermon. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. We have a personal creator. Paul begins here and he says, God who made the world and everything in it. In it. He made the world, he made everything in it. Now I understand when I say this and when I assert this that God is the creator and he made everything and he made everything in it. I understand that many people, probably most people, have not grown up believing this but have grown up believing something very different than that. That God is not creator and that something else brought the world and brought all of this into, uh, in, into being. And this morning, I'm not here to try and prove to you that God created or to bring up any arguments or defense about one way, whether God created or whether it was evolution or some other form or some mix of the two. That's not my point this morning. I haven't got the time for that. And there are other people out there who are much more uh, able to bring those truths to you than, than I am. So that's not my point this morning to try and convince you that God created. I want us to start this morning with this assumption, if you will. The Bible says that God created. So let's make that assumption with me, will you? That God created everything. And the reason I want us to just assume that is, is I want us to assume that and take that as truth because I want us not just to consider whether it's true or not. What I want us to consider is if that is true, if what the Bible says is true, that the God is the creator of everything, what are the implications of that? What happens as a result? What is necessary because of that? The implications of the fact that God created are enormous. So I want us to look at that side this morning. Let's consider and say God created all. What are the implications that come if indeed it is, as the Bible says, that God created everything? Because the Bible begins that way. 
Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all that we see, every minute detail of this, this wonderful and, and magnificent place God created. And it's overwhelming. We, we laid outside, the girls and I laid outside on our driveway last night. It was quite a, a sight. Laying outside on our, our driveway last night, looking up at the stars. And as we laid there looking up at the stars, uh, Anaya said to me, she was just overwhelmed by what God had done. And how amazing God is by being able to look up at the stars and just see the magnificence of what is around. Every minute detail is divinely created. Beautiful. Now, the implications of that. So Paul says here in verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it. So there, that's who did it. God created. But the implications of this truth are what follows. He is Lord of heaven and earth. That's the implication. If God is creator, then he is Lord. He is master. He is ruler of that creation. To put it another way, another Old Testament book, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 says, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. Everything belongs to God. Sure, the the money they talk about here and the money we make, well, it belongs to Caesar. But that's nothing compared to what God owns, what belongs to God. Now, if everything belongs to God, that includes you and me. You are not your own. You are not independent but dependent. You are not ruler of your life, but accountable for it. We have a personal creator. God himself created and created us, which shows us as Paul will will continue on in these next couple of verses, not only is he personal, but the very fact that he can create like this shows us that he is a powerful creator. Verse 25 of Acts 17 continues like this. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Do you have a friend uh, or, or someone you know that uh, you come East, uh, Christmas or their, their birthday and you're trying to find a present for them? They're hard to buy for because you, they, just, they have everything. I don't know what to give them because they have everything. Now, consider that when, when we look here at God who's created all things. What can I, possibly, can I possibly give to the one who actually has everything? He's created it all. He, he knows it. He created it. He owns it. What is the, the response? What can we possibly give to God? And one of the great climactic passages of the Bible, Romans chapter 11, because Paul has been been writing so much about about who God is and what God has done in in salvation and in our lives. He comes to this great climax before he shifts into the practical. And he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's not bound by our ways. He's not bound by our imagination or even our demands. He's above all of that, far above all of that. He has given us everything we have. So the first reason that we need to give to God, that we need to render to him what he is due, is firstly, he created us. The second flows from that, is an implication of that as we go through. And the second is that, that you bear his image. He created you, and as a result of that, you bear his image. The illustration Jesus uses here is the coin that they have to, to pay with, and he uses the illustration to show that the image of Caesar is on that coin, and because his image is on it, because it's imprinted in him, it has his it is his. It is his represented by his authority. When we talk about what God has done for us and how he has created us, one of the things we understand about how and why God created is when he created mankind, he created mankind as the pinnacle of his creation. The great peak, the, the climax of his creation. If we turn back right towards the beginning of the Bible to the very beginning there in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 gives us the, the Bible account of how the world began, that God created everything. As we get to the end of that creation account in verse 26, we find the account of how he created mankind in this. And it says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth beginning of that passage I read, verse 26, that beginning statement is remarkable. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. You are God's creation, but there is more to it than that. You are created in his likeness. You were created to bear his image. Caesar can demand tax because the coin bear his image. We bear the image of God, so he has the right to expect return. Like I said, this is not uh, a truth. This is a, one of the universal truths. This is true of all of us. Whether we believe God or Jesus Christ as Savior or not, this is true. We were created in his image. Every person is made by God equally in his image. So it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what your upbringing is or, or what culture you have or what race you are. None of that, that matters. We all bear the image of 
our Creator. There is a, a whole number of ways in which that is true. And, and our time this morning isn't about deciphering how we bear the image of God. We can look at that some other time, and we have done before, because there are a number of ways through the character that's in us, where we have, are able to show love and joy and, and compassion, or, or the, the way that we've been made with body, soul, and spirit. And so there are a lot of ways in which we bear the image of God. And while we're given authority, as we see here, we're also under authority. One of the beautiful things, though, I think, about the way the Bible describes the creation account is and every day where God creates something, he ends the day by saying that it is good. It's good. But then, with the addition of mankind... He looks at it all, and he doesn't just say that it's good, but now with the addition of mankind to it and it being complete, he says that it is very good. We are the pinnacle, the the, the great joy of his creation. With that part of creation, we've been purposely or purposefully created. God didn't create us on a whim or a joke. He didn't lose interest in us or intend to create and then just be distant and leave us to run on our own. God created us with intent and with purpose. Every other part of creation, so everything else that we see in creation was created with us in mind. Created for our benefit, for our good, for our blessing and for the glory of God. But it had us in mind. In meeting every need, he would care for us. His presence would be satisfying for us. You see, when I said at the beginning, I said these first two are are universal, but not everybody believes them. What makes these first two, that you are created by God and that you bear his image, what makes them controversial is the, the fact and the reason we don't believe them is because we have been marred. Sin has marred those parts of us. We don't see things like we would before. Sin has pushed out our love of God and replaced it with the love of ourself. And the image that we bear of God has been hidden. Uh, This is is my trumpet. I haven't played my trumpet in in a while. And and I know you probably can't see it very very well there. But on the bell here, uh, there is some beautiful inscriptions on it, there is uh, you know, some some lovely markers, and it also has there the name of of who made it, and it makes for a, a lovely addition to the bell of the trumpet on there. Now, when I got this trumpet out, because I hadn't played my trumpet for a while, I got it out, and it was tarnished. So all over the the beautiful silver plating it has, it had turned kind of brown and and uh, wasn't very nice to look at uh, at all. Uh, just it looked just dirty. But part of what had happened is over this beautiful inscriptions and the writing here and where it said who made the instrument. This was all covered with with tarnish as well, and so it was hard to read. You couldn't see who was the maker. You couldn't see the lovely inscriptions on that. It had been covered. It had been marred by the tarnish. So I got out my, my claws and I got out my, my cleaning things and I polished this all up and I took all the tarnish off with my, my cloths and with the, the cleaning things I needed to do. And now when I look at this trumpet, it's now pretty and it's got its uh, shiny silver finish and I can see the inscriptions. I can see the beauty of it. See, this is, in, in a sense... Kind of like we are with, with God. 
what was beautiful, the inscription on us that shows that we are gods, is not gone. It's covered. It's concealed. And we, we can't see that mark of God in our life as clearly as we should because of the sin that comes in our life. This is why Jesus came. See, in Luke chapter 20, where we're at, and we see this conversation going on, Jesus is, is just a very, very short time away from going to the cross. This is why he came, to deal with what mars us, to deal with what covers that image of God in our life, the sin. He was making it possible to restore that relationship. He was making it possible for us to be transformed into his image. Jesus came so that we could be satisfied with God again, so that we could enjoy him as we were intended to. These first two reasons that we are to give to God you are his creation, and secondly, that you bear his image. These are true for all of us, every one of us, believer and unbeliever alike. If God created us, he deserves a return from us. He deserves us to give back to him what belongs to him. Also, that in us he has placed his very own image. The third one and the final one and shorter one, which we will, we will develop a little bit more, more practically next week, is this, that you carry uh, his presence. You carry his presence. So this is focused more now on the believer. Those who have believed that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Those who have believed that God created me. Those that believe that I bear the image of God and I see that I need to give him what is due and I submit to him and follow him and obey him. And I've taken in his forgiveness of sin by believing Jesus died for my sin. We turn to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll spend a little bit more time here in 1 Corinthians 6 next week. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, perhaps a verse familiar to many of you. I know we've, we've certainly read it a number of times and talked about it through through our times together, but verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? See, in, in us, as we carry the presence of God, the picture here is that we, as the people of God, having believed Jesus Christ for our salvation, we now become a place of worship. He uses that picture of the Old Testament tabernacle, the, the, the temple of the Old Testament, which was the place where God abode. It was where you went to worship. It was where the presence of God was represented. But now, having had Jesus come and die on the cross for our sins, and having believed that in our own lives, we are given the very presence of God in the Holy Spirit. He indwells every single believer, and he does so absolutely and completely fully. There is nothing that you, you lose or nothing you must further attain at that. When you believe Jesus Christ as Savior, you become a place, the dwelling place of God, and a place of worship. The result of God's presence is that we each become a place of worship. 
part of the Spirit's role in transforming us to be like Christ is that he comes in us and he, he teaches us through his word. He takes the scriptures to us as we've done this morning and looked into God's word and, and taking it out and he teaches us what they mean and he helps us understand them because he's the author and he's the interpreter and he's the teacher of them. And then, having opened our eyes to the truth that's in the Word of God, he then helps us to understand it and help us to align our lives to it. In this, we surrender to God. This is part of the what that we give to God. That is, that we surrender ourselves, that we align ourselves to God's Word. Being the place of worship means that we also become, as the presence of the Holy Spirit lives within us, it also becomes a place of interaction with God. The temple of the Old Testament was a place where people interacted with God. It was where the sacrifices were made. It was where the singing was done as a, a corporate body. It was, it was where worship was, was made in its public sense. It was where uh, they confessed their sins. It was where they enjoyed and learned from God together. And here as the spirit abides in the life of the believer, it is also a place where God interacts with us, where he teaches us through his word and he moves us and we follow and we obey and we listen and learn. The question we started with this morning was what belongs to God. We examined three areas which teach the answer is, you do. What belongs to God? You. You belong to God. This is not just the answer for the Christian. The Christian of all people should be able to see that with great clarity and be able to understand that and pursue that as our great goal, that we belong to God. Sometimes we forget that, but this is a truth which is true for all. We all belong to God. Jesus' answer to this cunning question wasn't just clever. So this wasn't just a, a cunning answer, a quick way to, to push them off and, and confuse them so they couldn't answer. The question wasn't the answer wasn't just a clever answer. His answer was designed to powerfully pierce our hearts. To get us to consider that question, give to God what belongs to God. So what belongs to God? If I need to give to him what belongs to him, what belongs to him? He's calling us to consider that. What do I owe him in a sense? How should he write or what should he rightfully expect of me? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you belong to God because he created you. He rightfully has authority over you. You belong to God because you bear his image. Sure, it's faded now. Hard to see and our selfish desires have covered it over and, and pushed out a love for God and replaced it with a love for ourselves. But that image has not been erased. The distortion of these truths is at the heart of our troubles. 
when we don't understand and don't pursue these two things, it hinders our well-being, it hinders our satisfaction. It keeps us in a place, ultimately, of condemnation because it keeps us separated from God. Being separated from God, I find myself under his wrath because of my rebellion. But Jesus came to restore that relationship, to take care of the condemnation that we lie under. Believe that he is God. And that as God, he has the right to rule. Believe that in compassion, he died to pay for your sin. Now, believer, you've recognized that you are not your own. You've believed him and you've, you've submitted to his authority as God and as Savior. But you carry his presence now. So as our verse says in 1 Corinthians, glorify God in your body. We'll talk more about this next week, about how that is done. But this is the why. This is perhaps the most important part of it. The why. Because we belong to God. So give to God what belongs to God. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll close with our benediction. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great truths that we've been able to comprehend or at least consider this morning. That you created us. And what a gloriously magnificent creation you have made. Lord, how in each one of us you have, have wonderfully and uniquely designed us placed us perfectly in the great scheme of your plan. Not one of us has escaped your view. Not one of us is able to, to run and hide. But you see us all. And you look on us with care and concern. And in so doing have provided Jesus Christ to save us from what separates us from you. What has marred and tarnished our lives can be, can be made new and refreshed and cleaned, dear God, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Dear God, the question put to us this morning through Jesus is, what belongs to God? The answer is, I do. We do. So, dear God, let us, from this moment, give to you what belongs to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.